It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. What is the role of myth in America? What's the difference between the stories we tell ourselves and historical reality? David Blight is a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. He says history can be dreadful, so myths help us process it. Much of history is dark because human nature is dark. And so we sometimes have to find ways to process the past in sentimentalism, in stories that allow us to wake up in the morning. Today, he explains why he thinks the story of progress is America's biggest myth. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Writer William Faulkner famously wrote that, quote, the past is never dead, it's not even past. The myths David Blight mentions may be stories we tell ourselves about eras long gone. These stories can be as much about the present and future as they are about the past. History is a reasoned construction of the past, says Blight. Annette Gordon-Reed, another Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, says the point of history is to figure out how you got to where you are in the present day. For her, that means looking back to first grade when she made history. She was the only black student to attend a white school in her Texas hometown. If you're interested in the world as it exists, why things are the way they are, you have to sort of pull the thread, you have to go back and look at things that happened beforehand. Now, Gordon Reed writes about issues of race. Gordon Reed and David Blight sit down with journalist John Dickerson to discuss recent historical events like Charlottesville. They also talk about the concept of reparations for injustice and the role history plays as moral arbiter. Here's Dickerson. The topic is correcting America's historical memory. Uh, and the conversation is about what myths, uh, well, the conversation is going to go all over the place, but we're going to start, Annette, with you, which is the role of myth and the stories we tell ourselves in America. Which, pick one, um, and tell me where it diverges from the historical reality and why it's important to recognize the divergence and maybe dangerous that there is such a divergence from the stories we tell ourselves and the real history. Well, I suppose the thing that comes to mind is not a myth that everybody adheres to. It's the myth of the lost cause, um, the notion of a sort of gallant, noble South that was fighting for some amorphous thing called states' rights without any question about the state right to do what, um, was an understanding of, of history that caused a lot of turmoil and still continues to cause a lot of turmoil. And the, the reality, of course, is that the South fought to protect the institution of slavery and after the end of the war embarked upon a crusade, essentially, to bring black people back as near to slavery as possible. So this ideal of a sort of a genteel place, uh, magnolias, moonlight magnolias as they call it, uh, is a myth that has been really pernicious and it's one that we're just sort of coming out of, I think. 
And where would you put us in the coming out of? I mean, because there are some people who are just for the first time identifying that such a, a lost cause narrative exists and then need the process of seeing how dangerous that's been. Uh-huh. Where do you think we well, are? I think in the 20th century, the end of the 20th century, people began to see that the problem with that. Uh, where we are with it is that there are still some people who are resisting, but I think it's becoming a much more accepted story, the notion of what caused the Civil War and that it was not just about the tariff, that people didn't kill 700,000 people over the tariff, uh, is becoming really, really much more well-known. And I think we're sort of on our way out of it. But it, as I said, had a really pernicious effect for a very, very long time. David, you've talked about this, uh, the lost cause, and I remember in one of your podcasts, you, you used to talk about it. People come to you and say, I love the Civil War. I love, and you thought, you really, you loved a, a, a war that was this, had this much carnage. Mm-hmm. But there was a, there's a sense with history sometimes, you know, that, that there's a kind of lightness sometimes to things that are absolutely awful. Um, Yes, well, we have to sometimes find ways to process that which is awful. And much of history can be. Much of history is dark because human nature is dark. And so we sometimes have to find ways to process the past in sentimentalism, in stories that allow us to wake up in the morning, stories that don't give us nightmares, stories that make us feel good. I mean, if I had to choose, since Annette took the lost cause, which is a really good one, but... Uh, that's, that's fine. But if I had to choose, you know, the, the deepest, biggest American myth, and by that, I mean, you know, deep stories that we believe, not just that which is true or false, but it would be the myth of progress. The, the idea that American history is essentially going somewhere. I mean, it has a destination out there, and over the next hill is El Dorado. It's going toward progress. Uh, it's, it's rooted in that old notion of how America was born perfect and then launched its career of improvement. <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was really put together well at the founding. Yeah, we had this trouble 80 years into it. We had this, we had this civil war, but, you know, we solved the problem. And I, it, was, it was ugly. It was bad. But it was a, you know, it was a, it was a necessary suffering out of which we just got better, and we got more unified. And then we had other problems too along the way, and all that trouble between labor and capital at the turn of the 20th century, and a lot of violence there. But we got, we got better out of that too because of the progressives or something. And then uh, you know we had that Great Depression, but my God, you know we survived that and and then uh, saved the world in World War II and. Perhaps we did. Like any great myth, there is a lot of progress. There's a lot of truth in that progress. We've been on the side of angels at times and the side of the devil at times. But you cannot kill this idea, even if you wanted to. Well, it's it a just springs Jeff- anew. It's a Jeffersonian idea. Ah, it's your, I mean, it's your guy's fault. No, it's a Jeffersonian idea that they... <laughs> My guy. It's a Jeffersonian, it's a Jeffersonian ideal. Uh, things always getting better. This sort of an enlightenment yeah. notion. And yeah. one of these days, there will, people will become educated. And after people are educated, they'll know better than the people in the past. And it'll get better and better and better. And you're right. It's very, very hard 
to, you know, to sort of kill that off. It's the declaration. It doesn't say that things are getting better and better and better, but the, the notion is aspirational yeah. and hopeful. And yeah. so that's baked in, and it would be very, very hard to get rid of it. Always perfecting the union. Yeah, well, yes. The more, perf- uh, more perfect union. So, Annette, let's stay in this category. So let's stick with Jefferson. So, um, you know, uh, we're, we've all come to learn uh, more about Jefferson, mm-hmm. and there is a group of people who don't want to learn the new things about Jefferson. Um, place for you where Jefferson, the myth of Jefferson, um, existed and where Jefferson stands now, given the work that you've done. Well, I mean, Jefferson is always up and down. He was always a controversial figure, even when he was alive. And there were people who hated him. The first biographer mentions this. There are people who hated him and there are people who loved him because he had these very strong ideals and people bought into them and it caused a rift um, in, in the country. So what I would say is where he is right now is sort of on a downswing because people, and he has been probably since the 60s because of uh, once the civil rights movement gets started and you start thinking about African-American people and African-American people's rights, he was a slave owner. And certainly, even though he was used by, has been used by every African-American leader, either as, a, as an example or to uh, sort of a, a, an ideal, to sort of talk to people about American ideals that we were falling short of, he's been useful. People began to focus in on the slave owning. And I think that has caused a problem for him. Washington and other members of the founding generation as well. Right. So... He has always been controversial and remains so, and I, I, I suspect it will be up and down forever. And we're going to talk about judging people in their time and then judging people by today's standards and, and the complexities, but w- where you can begin and end with that. But David, I want to ask you about Frederick Douglass, who used those words in the Declaration of Independence mm-hmm. and uh, reminded America of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which, and its need to keep progressing, and that it wasn't progressing the way it thought it was. Um, so in a way, uh, Frederick, and you can just dismantle this if I've got it wrong, but Frederick Douglass is reminding people, you, were, you are not on the progress that you think you are, but you should be. So that myth was, in a sense, useful. Oh, yeah. Uh, in fact, Douglass loved the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Douglas likened the first principles of the Declaration of Independence to precious ore, natural rights, natural, like ore from the ground, whether that's iron ore or oil or, you know, water. It belonged to everybody. The Declaration didn't belong to anyone. It belonged to everybody. And its principles were fine. The creeds were fantastic. It's the behavior. It's the history that didn't live up to it. Most famously, he expressed it, of course, in the Fourth of July speech, of 1852, uh, the rhetorical masterpiece of American abolitionism, where he takes down American hypocrisy in about as fierce and eloquent way as you will ever possibly read. The Fourth of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. Why have you invited me here to speak on the Fourth of July, uh, etc.? He says America needs sacrilegious irony. That was his term. You need to face yourself. It's, it's the Jeremiadic tradition. It's the old Puritan Jeremiad that says, you have lost your faith, you have lost your creeds, and I'm calling you back to the altar because maybe, just maybe, you have enough time left to find it. Of course, he's hardly alone in that. We have many other examples in our history of people who've looked at the Declaration of Independence as, as this beautiful, important, great 
creed that came out of the Age of Enlightenment, but we haven't quite lived up to it yet, or we haven't lived up to it here, or lived, lived up to it there. I mean, in one sense, you can say, thank God we have it. Well, King did it, obviously, in 1963. Um, Every Du Bois talks about this and the hypocrisy and all of it. Uh, That's been the way it has been used and the use that people have put to it, put it to And and that, you know, so some people would say, well, but Thomas Jefferson was a man of his time. And it's very striking in the beginning of your book where you uh, talk about the farm book Mm -hmm. and... um, Tell people a little bit about the farm book and, and the point you make at the beginning. Well, I had gone to the Massachusetts Historical Society and given a talk there, and they were about to put the farm book. Jefferson's farm book was his account of the farm, of the plantation Monte- Monticello and his other farms as well. And he wasn't the only plantation owner who did that. I mean, it's a business, and you're keeping the inventory of your business. So it lists enslaved people, how, what he, and he used it to determine what he had to give out for the next year. I gave out this you know, many loaves, this many fish, all those kinds of things. And with everybody's name, the families, and so forth. And I had been reading this, seeing it only in facsimile, in research, as a, as a teenager and when I was working on my book. When I was at the Massachusetts Historical Society, they had the actual copy because Jefferson's grandchildren... Uh, one of his grandchildren had given it to the Massachusetts Historical Society, probably sold it to the Massachusetts <laughs> Historical Society, uh, and because the Library of Congress did not want Jefferson's personal things. They wanted the letters, but they didn't want all the personal documents of the farm and everything. Can you imagine? I mean, a wonderful resource. But in any event, so they said, well, well, we'll let you see it before we put it away, because they weren't letting people look at it anymore because they didn't want it to be destroyed. And you know this when you're in an archive and you see something that is that the person that you're writing about actually wrote. And in the first place, I had in my mind, because it was such an important document, that it would be large. And in fact, it's relatively small. And there's his handwriting, very neat handwriting in this document. And it was just very emotional to me because you're actually seeing this person write down the story of the lives of people he's controlling. You know, I am the great white father, and I am giving this out, and I'm doing this, and I'm controlling these people's lives. And I say in the book, my predominant thinking is, you know, who do you think you are? And that's an important question to ask if you're writing about this individual. And my latest book with Peter Onuf is about that question, most blessed of the patriarchs, is who did he think he was? And that moment in the Massachusetts Historical Society led me to want to answer that kind of question. And I finally got around to it <laughs> this, this last time. And that farm book was as much of a biography of those slaves as he ever thought they would get. You oh, write yes, about... exactly. I mean, the, he probably, of all the things that would surprise him, people ask all the time, or what would Jefferson think of this, or what would he think of that? I mean, he would be really surprised to know that there are people out there who are experts... And I'm kind of one, but Lucia Stanton, people like that who actually uh, have spent years and years and years studying the lives of enslaved people, would use that document as a historical document to write about these people. I just came back from Detroit a couple of weeks ago that had the exhibit, Slavery at Monticello, and it has, it's a museum that talks about these enslaved people. And we know many of these things from the farm book, from the record that he kept of their lives. David, while we're on this um, 
the beauty of history and what you all do so well, which is spend time in quiet rooms with old documents, piecing it all back together. Did you, did you have a moment, whether it was with the Walter uh, O. Evans, Douglas material, which was new, that was like what Annette's talking about? Yeah, I've been lucky to have several of these just unbelievable discoveries in an archive where you're just blind lucky and the light shines through the window and you say, uh, God, thank God, I hope this is true. Please, God. please be real. Make this not a fake document, please. Uh, I had several of those in the book I did on Civil War memory. With Douglas, yes, I mean, very quickly, a private collection of Douglas material owned by Walter Evans, an African-American collector in Savannah. Huge, huge collection, particularly of family scrapbooks, which opened up Douglas, the last third of Frederick Douglass's life in ways we've never been able to see it, including thousands of newspaper clippings. I'll just give you one really quick example of something so simple as a single little newspaper collection, uh, newspaper clipping. It's election night, 1864. This is so simple, it's, but it's simpler than Jefferson's farm book. But it's a reminiscence by a guy living in Rochester in 1881, and he's re- remembering. And Douglas became like Lincoln. People who knew Douglas liked to write, write it up. The day I saw Douglas, the day I had lunch with Douglas, the day I stubbed Douglas's toe somewhere or whatever. But this guy says, I was the pole worker the night of the 1864 election, Lincoln's re-election, and I put Frederick Douglass's ballot in the ballot box and yada, yada, yada. But then he says, and then I walked back into the center of the city that night because I lived near Douglas, and we were walking in to go to the uh, telegraph office to, to get the returns of the election. Was Lincoln going to be re-elected? And he says, four drunken white thugs came out of an alleyway and they challenged Douglas to a rumble and Douglas, according to this guy, Douglas put up his fist and said, all right, let's have it, let's have it, let's go. And according to our witness, the four drunken thugs scurried back into the alley and the guy says, Douglas had a physical and political triumph that night. And I thought, I should have a second source for this, but by, <laughs> by God, I'm going with it. And I narrated that for two paragraphs. You know? yes. Just a little texture like that sometimes, and you think, please be true. Yeah. You know? well, I mean, In journalism, we call it too good to check. Too, too check. Yeah. You do that history as well, too good to check. Yeah. And, and things... And he was a real person, and he did work at the poll. Yeah. So. I, I can add really quickly, I had the experience thinking about documents that come up uh, a few weeks ago, I got a query from the papers of Thomas Jefferson in New Jersey, and they asked me about a letter from a woman named Critta Bowles to Thomas Jefferson in 1801, and they said, could this be Critta Hemings, Sally Hemings' sister? And of course, that's who it is. And Jefferson kept a a record of all of the letters that he sent out and all the letters that came in, and and so there would be thousands of these things. So they had just seen this. So there's a letter from Sally Hemings' sister to Jefferson when he is president. Now, the letter is not extant, but you find out something about these people. I didn't know she knew how to write. Um, And I have a feeling I know what it is that she's writing to him about. Her son was beaten at Monticello during that time period, and he'd run away. And 
told Jefferson he's not coming back unless he was put under the tutelage of John Hemings, his uncle. Jefferson agrees to that, and then Jamie, the person who was beaten, decided that he wasn't going to come back at all, and Jefferson just takes him off the slave rolls. When I write about this in The Hemingses of Monticello, it would have been wonderful to have known that Critta was writing to him at the same time that all of this was going on. That has to be what it's about. But those kinds of things, the documents that you find that um, are breathtaking, and then there are things that you find later that actually give more texture to the situation after it's over. You know, Sally Hemings' sister is writing to Jefferson, President Jefferson, about her son. And the letter would have gotten, gotten through to him? Oh, yeah, that's how he knew how to write it. In the book. In the, in the uh, SJL, his uh, summary journal letters. Right. So let's go back to this question of the myths we tell ourselves. David, I'm struck that the, 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 that is an account of an Africa, a former slave in a hero posture. I mean, what makes that story potentially not believable is, uh, is the kind of, he's an American hero. So it's an amazing you have a former slave in, what year is that, 1881? That let, the little yeah. snippet you read about yeah. being portrayed as an American hero. Right. Right. Um, I'll ask both of you this, but I'll start with you, David, with this idea of... Um, it's not just that we tell stories to ourselves to keep reminding us that we're on the progressive, always advancing, advancing, but we like a good, we like a good hero. Oh, sure. Yeah. We um, like epic. Yeah. yeah. Who doesn't? Who doesn't like an epic story with a beginning, a middle, and an ending, and if the ending is particularly redemptive? Yeah. Americans love redemption. We're not alone in that, but we've got a big case of it. <laughs> we like our stories to take us somewhere. And, and to tell us how we solve something. We're, we're problem solvers. Uh, and epics have to have heroes and villains, by definition. The problem with that is, of course, it lends itself to history as melodrama. And history, at the end of the day, is not melodrama. Melodrama is something we make and put on top of it. History and memory are not quite the same thing. We use that word memory uh, often very easily. You know, American memory, the problem in American memory, the soul of American memory. Uh, mem- there's a lot more memory. There's a great deal more memory out there than there is history. And by memory, I simply mean the stories we come to believe, yes. the stories we want to live in, our grandparents' stories. The, the stories we learn from schooling or from church, the narratives we want to live in, are much more plentiful and powerful than the history we write. I mean, we'd like to alter that, but good luck. You know, so, and what historians do is less, we, we, we don't correct the past as much as we try to explain it and give texture to it and, and, and give measure to it and remind people to keep a long view and so on. But sometimes people don't have time for long views. They don't want their grandmother's story to be messed with because it's heritage. Memory gets owned. History just gets interpreted. And the one one is kind of cooler than the other. (laughs) Cooler than the other. Well, I mean, you mentioned Americans, and we need this. I was talking to some historians about this, and we were discussing um, North America and South America and why there's such a focus on founders, yeah. and, and it's because we're new. You know, we want these, these epic stories that we tell are told about people who are not that very, you know, far out of distance. You know, yeah. if you go back to the generations of people, so a new country that's, that's deciding who it is, that doesn't have a national race, doesn't have a national religion, 
and is relatively new, loves these kinds of myths, these kinds of stories to sort of tell us who we are. I mean, a thousand years of French history. I mean, Oxford University is a thousand years old. I mean, a, a place, not the history of, of, of England or UK, they have a go back really, really far. China, 5,000 years to that, to that. And we have, you know, you can, there are people who, within living memory, could have known Douglas, um, could have, you know, encountered Douglas in ways, and Jefferson just a few generations back. So, this I've is heard something from a that few, required. whether they actually know him or not. They could have, though. They potentially yeah, could have. But this is all very new, and it's, I think it's especially important for a country like that to have myths and, and founders and stories, epics that we tell ourselves about who we are. And so, Annette, does the, does the history and, I mean, just memory and these myths play a foil role when you're working? Does it get in the way of what you're trying to do? Um, take us inside the process and what this role, what role does uh, these Well, I think it, it doesn't get, in, for me, it doesn't get in the way as I'm doing it because the story, things are unfolding through the documents, through the things that you're looking at. I'm well aware of what, how people might receive it. The reception of it, the myth and uh, memory collide with you know, collide with the history sometimes when you go out on the road or when the po- you put the book out and then people write to you and say, that's not true, that's not what happened, um, or you're trying to destroy, I mean, you have an agenda, those kinds of things. Myth doesn't, I mean, I have to, to think about the stories that are told and can they be corroborated, for example. And, and you have to do that with documents and you, and you do the normal process that historians do. But the real problem comes in reception. How do people receive what you have written? Mm-hmm. Are they willing to take what, you're, what you've written as, uh, as real? Particularly when you have a person who is at the center of American, the American story. Absolutely. And how, how people re- you know, receive what you, you say about him is really, really uh, can be tricky sometimes. Sure. Well, you walked into a minefield of American memory with this iconic guy Jefferson, no yeah. question. Yeah. Everyone, almost everyone, has some image of Jefferson in their head. Okay. And by the way, he's every... A nickel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, he's the uh, American high priest of the founding, if you want, even though he wouldn't like that word priest. Would no, he wouldn't. Yeah. No, he'd hate that. Not at all. But everyone, everyone has a sense of the past in their head. Everyone walking around has a sense of the past in their head. They got it by a whole variety of means. They got it from family. I, I'm, from, I'm from there, my parents did this, and I'm that, and I went there to school. Everyone has a narrative in their head. Our job is to mess with it. Yeah. And people don't like for you to mess with it. And, and you and understand no, why they don't. And, yeah. and our, our, our task is, is difficult. I'll, quick answer to the, the question you asked Annette. I mean, when I was doing this book on Civil War memory, I mean, that's a minefield. And, you know, it, it's a world of roiling, competing narratives of what the Civil War was about and who got to tell that story over the 50 years after the war. Robert Penn Warren once wrote in one of his so many memorable lines, he said, the Civil War for Americans is like a lot of unexploded grenades laying around in the brush, and sometimes we just kick one and it blows up in our face which is exactly what's happened in the last three, four years since Charleston and Charlottesville and all the rest. And, and I did find myself 
very aware that I'm writing against the grain of certain deep mythologies, lost cause being one of them, certain deeply dug ideas about American reconciliation after the Civil War. But my job was still to get behind the evidence, do good research, do good history, and tell how those memories were forged over time. And then just wait for people Whatever to get happens. upset. For people to be angry. And if you're lucky to write a book that upsets people, so be it. Yeah, you know? yeah. that's the point. Well, sometimes. What is? Yeah. So let's tr- let's go back to that basic idea. And it, what is the point of history? Mm. Well, the point of history. I mean, the the sort of textbook thing that people say is to figure out how you got to where you are at this particular moment. If you're interested in where you are. How did I get here? I mean, that's what it is for me. Uh, And it's always been so intuitively interesting to me that I find it hard when people don't find it intuitively interesting. So that's a difficult question for me to answer. Because it was a matter. No, really. I mean, so I have to pause on that. But for me, if I ask why it is, you you know, how did I get to be in this particular place? I had the experience of integrating our school district. They were, in my hometown, my home area, resisting Brown for over a decade. And I, had, and I did that as a first grader. And I was there by myself for a year. And that gave me an occasion to think about, what is this? You know, why is this a big deal? What happened? And in a very obviously rudimentary way at that level. So it's always been obvious to me that if, you think, if you're interested in the world as it exists, why things are the way they are, you have to sort of pull the thread, you have to go back and look at things that happened beforehand. Uh, it, just, it would seem to me to be an odd way to try to go to the world, and particularly if you're thinking about changing certain things, not to know how you got to where you are, that it's important as a matter of interest for the present, but also possibly for, should I try, if I'm thinking that something should be changed, should I try this? Has it been tried before? Right. How did it work then? Is the context different enough for me to try it? It's, it's, a, it's useful for it's me. The, it's the Kennedy, do, well, the Santana, I guess, doomed to repeat sure. it. Mm-hmm. But that's all a reason pro- process, and I, of course, I completely agree with you. Um, history is a reasoned reconstruction of the past. Uh, we do it by canons of rules and evidence. Uh, we're guided by rules. We can't make it up. But at the end of the day, we're storytellers. And if we ever forget that, we will, we will have no audience. We are storytellers. We're narrative writers, which means there are always going to be competing narratives. And the other thing that is yeah. so, I, I agree with you, it ought to be intuitive. Our job, though, is to teach people to realize it's intuitive, and that is that the present and the past are always mingled. They're always mingled. You're walking around every day living in the legacies of the past. You're living in the legacies of Reconstruction. You're living in the legacies of the Great Depression, the legacies of the Civil Rights Movement, the legacies of the Vietnam War. You're living in a whole variety of legacies. What if you were living in that and didn't know anything about them? Well, you might live in a kind of bliss. Yeah. You might. And, and that's why forgetting is so important. It is. Forgetting is the flip side of memory. But then suddenly something happens. Why did they attack us on 9-11? Why, 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 we kept asking. Why were those 10,000 alt-right maniacs in Charlottesville? God, where did they come from? 
Why did that kid walk into that church in Charleston and murder nine people in a black church? How could he do that? How could that happen? This is America. How could that happen? You know, well, it turns out there's a history by which Dylan Roof got there. (laughs) And it's not pretty, but we need to know it. And it's when we get surprised by history, when it comes around and just blasts us between the eyes, that we realize, oh, God, I should have known that. Or maybe our leaders should have read some history. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, is out with a new episode that features former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. When it comes to being an immigrant and helping women succeed, Albright says she's unapologetic. I have for a long time talked about the importance of women being part of every process and certainly the political process, um, mainly because uh, women are needed, our ideas are needed. Hear more from Albright in the episode, Madeline Albright is Unapologetic. Just look for Aspen Insight wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's John Dickerson. Annette, I want to ask you to take David's um, uh, definition of history, the reasoned reconstruction of the past. Can you add the word a reasoned moral reconstruction of the past? What role does the historian play as a moral judge, arbiter? Well, I I think it is a moral enterprise. History is a moral enterprise. It's like anything, there has to be a balance. I mean, we're not there to be the prosecutor of someone in history. You know, I mean, maybe a a handful of people. But but generally, (laughs) historians aren't there to do that. You can't just say, you know, and here's where they slaughtered the innocents, and that's what they used to do, and so now move on to something else. Um, You have to take note of that uh, of things that are so egregious, things that are so out of out of the ordinary, and you can't. It has to, it's done on a case by case basis. If you're talking to people about, I've been having a discussion with people about early marriage and how in the 18th century, people thought that somebody who was 16 was eligible to get married, and today a 16 year old is a baby to us, but that's not what it was in the 18th century. Is that something, is that cultural understanding as extreme, I don't know the word I want to use, as slavery? In other words, if you're willing to say that's just what they did at that time, marrying people who were 16 to, or you know, Gabriella Harvey marries uh, Tom Randolph, he's 50, she's 17, they did that. That was not seen as a horrible thing. I mean, it was not the most common thing, but it wasn't out of the ordinary because a 17-year-old woman, I mean, what is she? She's not going to college. She's not going to, I mean, what, what happens? What does she do but get married? Is that sort of moral judgment the same as slavery? Is, it, is that, you know, th- are those two things similar? So it has to be on a case-by-case basis. You have to talk about it in, in the presentation in the book. The reader will accept it or not. I don't think you can just 
wave a hand and say, well, that's what they used to do then about every single thing. Is one useful way to think about it. I came across at the Constitutional Convention, Governor Morris, from one of the delegates from Pennsylvania, stands up while everybody's talking about natural rights and gives the most extraordinary rant about slavery Mm -hmm. and about allowing it to continue Mm -hmm. in real time Mm -hmm. while Madison's there with his slaves Mm -hmm. so that, to your analogy, Mm -hmm. was there there anybody standing up and saying, well, 16's too young? Mm -hmm. There were people standing up in the founding four months in in Philadelphia in that Mm -hmm. summer who were saying, this is an evil. It's against all the things we're here talking about. Of course, they were ignored. Mm -hmm. But but somebody was in the moment making Mm -hmm. that moral claim. Is that a way to adjudicate Well, that's a way to to adjudicate it. That's an interesting word. There's a way to look at this. Um, yes, there were people who were against it at the time. But I, for me, how widespread is that, yeah. that notion? I mean, the problem may be that we don't spend enough time talking about the people who did that kind of thing, who made those kinds of statements. Gouverneur Morris probably should be known much more than he is known. Um, there were always people like that. But I also think you make a mistake if you... Suggest that that it, to suggest that that kind of sentiment was widespread enough, right. because because then with that it allows the audience to say, oh, I would have been Governor Morris. Yes, back at that time period, everybody's looking for the person, the good person they would have been in the historical story. When in fact, the vast majority of people do what the vast majority of people do. We go along with whatever the world is at this particular moment. So extraordinary people should be recognized, but they shouldn't be taken as the norm. Well, I would just say, in adding to that, that as historians, we make moral judgments all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we assemble our evidence, and we we better be behind our evidence. Mm -hmm. But we do make moral judgments. There's no question about that. Sometimes we do it with indignation. (laughs) And sometimes a reviewer would say, this is written with with a certain degree of indignation, and it's a compliment. Mm -hmm. And sometimes not. Yeah. (laughs) But but the, the, the... what we do in history, and this goes back to um, R.G. Collingwood. I don't know if any of you ever read R.G. Collingwood on the nature of history, but he said what we really do in writing history is we, over time, try to develop a trained imagination. Mm-hmm. A trained imagination and how we use evidence and then how we convert it into story and, and what's a persuasive uh, interpretation and then how we assemble that interpretation at the end of the day we're working with some kind of trained imagination we hope uh, but but at the end of the day also the best thing we can try to remember is humility and how we make those judgments mm-hmm. humility maybe the most important thing to have in any walk of life uh, we're judging jefferson or we're judging the 19th century the 18th century whatever century uh, we're judging last night's politics you know we ought to do that's harder to do than judging the 18th and the 19th century because we're living in it. Uh, but humility is the best value I can think of for a good historian. My, and think about the histories you really like, the histories that have moved you, the histories you've really read all the way through. They're probably, there's probably a good deal of passion in the storytelling. It's probably a subject about which you can feel the passion of the author and you can feel the passion of that history. Without that passion, what would you have? You'd have a reconstruction of the past. There might not be any story to it. The story is both our problem and our pleasure. Uh, 
because uh, some stories can be dangerous. Yeah. Some stories can take hold of us and, uh, and eliminate everything else. Well, and, and in our last four minutes before questions, Annette, I want to talk to you about Charlottesville. Uh, well, three things are in my mind. Take any of them and either weave them together or pick one. One is the expression, you're on the wrong side of history. So what do you, there's that. Then there is Charlottesville, which takes, you know, marching down the academical village created by Thomas Jefferson are white nationalists, white supremacists, uh, in a fight over, well, nominally in a fight over a Confederate statue. Um, and then we have the question of reparations, which for some people is about slavery, and for some people, slavery echoes through right up until our doorstep today. And the history is not something in the past, but has had its echoes through Jim Crow, through redlining. So these are instances, it seems to me, where history is, as David said, smacking us right in the head, and we have to deal with it. Well, okay, I'll take them one by one. Um, history, on the wrong side of history, I don't think history has a side. I mean, that goes along with the notion that we're marching towards some inevitable progress. and Westward the course of empire. Exactly, yeah, some progress. And the people who are doing something that we don't like, you're on the wrong side of history, sort of suggest that we know that in the future, the thing that we don't like is going to be anathema. And we don't know that. So I, I, would, I don't like on the wrong side. I know what people are saying. They're saying, do the right thing. Yeah. Is just another way of saying do the right thing and invoking history as as a, as a as a guide to that and supposedly having a side. I don't think that there's an inevitable progress. We're inevitable. We're moving towards El Dorado or whatever. Um, as Charlottesville, they're marching uh, in Charlottesville because Charlottesville had the reputation because Jefferson is his hometown, sort of, and the Academical Village. It's seen as a liberal place, and Jefferson is there with the sort of dual character of the Declaration and Notes on the State of Virginia, where they could point to him saying that blacks and whites can't live together without conflict, so there should be separation. There's a reason they're there. There's a reason they're going to the statue, and there's a reason that there were students standing around the statue to stop them from getting there. So these competing sort of American notions are in play in this particular place. And, you know, the last one... Well, reparations? Reparations. Reparations are a a difficult subject. It's something that is very clearly about the legacy of the past. As a lawyer, I tend to think of rules, and what comes to my mind is is reparations for slavery are problematic. Um, I think it's the moral right, but I see a, a difficulty with it coming to fruition, reparations for Jim Crow, reparations for government-sanctioned discrimination against black people, the FHA, redlining, plaintiffs, people that are alive, active folks, you know, state action, that's the, the thing you need. You need state action for that. Uh, it was post-14th Amendment, clearly violations of the Fourth Amendment, those kinds of things. I think you could find plaintiffs, you could find people who could get reparations for that, and that would be the moral and just thing to do. And the moral and pragmatic thing to do, an actual thing that could be done. Reparations for slavery, I think, is a moral right. The difficulty of doing it just upon that basis, I think, would be extremely, extremely hard, uh, given the situation that we're in today and attitudes. But 
what happens after that, there's a multitude of things that need to be repaired that for which you need reparations. And you could get them. There's a legal claim standing, all the kinds of things that you need, injury in fact, um, for law, contract buying, all the kinds of stuff that people have talked about uh, where black people were not allowed to, you know, to buy homes, places, were given loans. Even people who are eligible for real loans were forced into contract buying. All that stuff is happening in modern times. And our plaintiffs, I mean, I, when I went to the doctor, I went to a separate waiting room. When I went to um, the movies, my brothers and I sat in the balcony. We had to. I mean, it was probably against the law then, but the, the town people, the people in our town would not have tol- you know, tolerated that. So there are plenty of things to, be, to get reparations for other than, than, than slavery, which is right, but I think a difficult sell. I'll just say one thing about reparations because it's a hugely complicated problem. The problem for America is we live in a world that has been raging for repair for half a century and more. There are all kinds of regimes of repair around the world, in India, in South Africa, in Chile, not to mention Germany's enormous reparations for the Holocaust to Israel and many other places. We live in a world raging for repair, often taking their glance toward us and saying, what about you Americans in slavery? Now, how to do it is the problem. Whether you're on the wrong side of history, I don't believe history's going anywhere in particular. It doesn't have some destination out there. But I understand the, 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 the sensibility. I understand the urge. And, we some, and where you're on the wrong side of history comes about, of course, is always when, when history suddenly explodes in the present, mm-hmm. whether it was the issue of gay marriage or it's some other issue or it's uh, trying to set clocks back. When we feel someone's trying to set a clock back on voting rights, on environment, on all kinds of other things, we sometimes end up saying, mm-hmm. come on, man. History's already passed you by on that. And they'd say no. <laughs> no and they would say no. Or they would say it wrongly passed us by. Mm-hmm. And that's where the debate comes. We can't quite resist that language, though, because of the way history is all over the present, yeah. whether we like it or not. All right, let's have a couple of questions. There are microphones in the house. I was wondering if you could share what you feel one of the most helpful maybe stories or myths that we believe about history today is and what's maybe one of the most dangerous. Helpful myths? You want to do helpful and I'll do dangerous? (laughs) (laughs) Helpful myth. Well, I would say the myth of American exceptionalism is a helpful myth because I think at its best it calls Americans to reach outside of themselves to aspire the kind of um, optimism that I talked about before we are better than that even though we know that there are other great places in the world Uh, we're better than this particular action I think that's a myth that is can be helpful I think there is a helpful myth in the idea that Americans have at times sacrificed themselves for other people's freedom, fate, welfare, and you see it when you visit a Normandy, or you see it when you uh, visit the American cemetery in Cambridge, England, which is where all the pilots were buried. Uh, When you see the death rates on those bombers, you think, God, how did they get on those planes? 
knowing how many, how few would come back. Uh, the, the, the myth of, of our self-sacrifice for others uh, is, not, and not just because it may lead the next generation to do it, I'm not advocating that, but it's a fact. There are times Americans have gone places to die for people they don't even know. Uh, there are a lot of dangerous myths, a whole lot of dangerous myths. There are a lot of dangerous myths around the idea of dismantling the New Deal state. I know that's a very political question, but there's a tremendous effort now to, to dismantle the social contract. And it wasn't new in the New Deal. The social contract goes back to John Stuart Mill and goes back to you know a lot of places in history and isn't just in America. Uh, but if we dismantle the social contract, if we cease believing that people owe their governments something, but governments owe their people something, and if we ever cease believing that modernity and industrialization and now post-industrialization necessitated government engagement with people's lives, then I, I don't know what we've done with history except to turn clocks back. And, of course, there's a thousand dangerous myths about race and racism that keep reviving every time we... We think we've made tremendous strides, and we have made tremendous strides uh, on race. And then we, we learn again that, gosh, uh, two steps forward, one back, or one forward, two back, you know. But that's also the way history, the one thing Americans need most, and we'll never quite get it, I don't think, uh, is a sense of tragedy. We don't have a real sense of tragedy in our culture. We don't like it. We don't even like the word. But that's what history ultimately is. Everybody has tragedy. Why don't Americans have it? Just because we believe in progress? The tragedy is we only have two more questions. We'll do uh, one over here and then one more. Oh, it's a tough word, too. Thank you both. Curious about how how the two of you work, uh, having just finished Robert Caro's small little missive on how he works and, and giving us a insight into the process. Can the two of you share that? Go ahead. <laughs> the process of... You're going to write your Carol-esque working yeah. book? How do I work? Mm. Um, do you want to go first? <laughs> well, I'm reading that I, book, no, how, which I love because yeah. I love Carol. I've never read all the way through a volume of Carol's LBJ. I have read him, though, lots of portions of it for what he's so brilliant at, which is creating scenes mm-hmm. and creating context. He can spend pages and pages creating an hour in LBJ's life, and I love it, you know, because it takes me deep into a circumstance. And he's never trying to tell me just some moral tale about LBJ. And he doesn't just defend LBJ by sure any doesn't. No, he doesn't. <laughs> at all. <laughs> no, I mean, I... I... Uh, oh, my work... <laughs> Well, give us a sense of place, David. Are there, there oh, pages everywhere in a living yeah, room? I'm or a you... paper person. Okay. I don't put my research all online. Even if I type all my notes on a laptop, I print them all out. I have to paper everywhere. I put it in paper. I've got to have paper in front of me. And you'll hate this, but I have to chew toothpicks when I'm writing. Uh, that's what he was going for. He won't hate it. That's the color well, he was looking they for. They are my, I don't know, they're my safety thing, and I have to have toothpicks when I'm well, I never chew them otherwise. I research until I get 
in the mood of writing. Mm. And then mm. it's very hard for me to compose on a computer. Oh. So the serious writing I do, I start I writing. Um, I write it out until I get to the point, like a takeoff, you know, mm. like a pilot takes off, until uh, I get to a point that I'm soaring with it or I'm flying with it. And then I take what I've written and put it on the computer, and then I continue. I can't stop on the computer and say, you know, once upon a time, I can't do that. And it really requires me to, and when I get stuck, I have to go back to the paper. Um, that's how thank, I write. Thank God, Annette. And I, uh, <laughs> I read my way into writing. If, if I'm having a writing day, I get up and I read something to get the language yes. in my head. And I never finish the day of writing without a period on a sentence and the end of a paragraph, even if it's terrible. I know I'm coming back to it, but it's got to have some ending or I can't leave the room. Well, I think young, and I think young people who don't write <laughs> you asked. Who, who, who may have a different way. I'm not saying that this is a better way or a worse way. It's no, just that everybody that's has how I was trained way. to do it. And I think that there are, probably, there are people who can sit down and compose on the computer. And they save themselves time by being able to do that. But I, 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 I can't. On the, I compose on the computer, and I truly don't know what I'm going to say entirely until I say it. I outline like crazy. I don't outline. Both seem. Yeah. I outline like I used to outline letters to my mother. Yes. It's got to have an outline, but then I don't always follow it. it yeah. I let it flow. So. Oh, this is well. This is helpful to those of us who write. We got the last question here in the back. So you spoke to this a bit already that we like to the idea of redemption. We like to essentially be heroes in our own stories. We reflect, which makes it difficult for us to look honestly at taking native land or African labor. What is it about the Germans and others who've been able to actually look in the mirror and hold all the complexity, right? We're not all good or all bad. We struggle as Americans to hold all of it. What, what is it about other societies that seems to allow them to, to hold a complexity? I love the question. Loss and defeat repeatedly. Loss. Talk to Russians about tragedy. Talk to modern Germans about tragedy about loss mm-hmm. and, and having to face it, now, especially Germans. Mm-hmm. Americans have lost. We've lost a lot. We've had defeats now. But we, we have not completely let that penetrate our master narrative. Mm-hmm. And it's how we've lost. I mean, we lost, but we, we've lost in foreign places. Mm. We've not, we've, the only people who've lost on this soil because it was a battle between brothers, allowed for a reconciliation, fought for a reconciliation, and never had to accept that they lost, can continue to build monuments and celebrate that and to actually make their story the, uh, the romantic story. I mean, the, there's no romantic Nazis. You know, you don't have, you know, many series, I imagine, in Germany about, you know, North and South, like the mini series, many years when I was a kid, North yeah. and South, yeah. that made the North look sort of, you know, boring, you know, the, the dashing Patrick Swayze with the long hair, uh, dashing honor bound person. I mean, we've, we've lost, but we've lost in foreign territories, we're never to face it or when we've lost on our soil, because it was a fratris, you know, you know, fraternal war, uh, the emphasis, as David has so eloquently written about, was 
for reconciliation rather than facing. It's like beating up your little brother and you still have to live in the house with him and your mother is watching. So you put it aside and you put things together and you go forward. We've never, we've never had to face that. Well, many Americans have never had to face it. A journalist once asked Walker Percy, the great Southern writer, why has the South produced so many of America's greatest writers? And he said, well, that's easy, because we lost the wall. That was his whole answer. And that's going to have to be the last word. Thank you to both of you. Annette Gordon-Reed is a history professor at Harvard. She won the 2009 Pulitzer Prize in History for the Hemingses of Monticello, an American family. David Blight is a historian and professor at Yale, where he directs the Gilder Lerman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. His book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, won the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for History. John Dickerson is a correspondent for 60 Minutes on CBS. Their conversation was held in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keeleen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Milgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.